morning, Crosspoint Peachtree City family, uh, along with those of you who may be joining us from outside of our church family this morning, whether it be this lawn or this live stream, which as I say each and every week these days, thanks for bringing the church into both. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm one of the pastors, uh, the guy who most weeks gets the privilege of unpacking the scriptures as we come together. Uh, I've already begun to notice what the new splash zone is. There's like a, a horseshoe of sun that kind of goes around this tree right here, and I'm expecting no one throughout the remainder of this summer to ever sit there. Um, but I am wondering who's going to be bold enough to sit in that little plot of, sh of shade right there when all is said and done. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to uh, 2 Corinthians 11 this morning. We'll be in the first 15 verses of that chapter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible... If you don't own a Bible, if you have a digital device, you can go to www.esv.org, uh, and that is a, a digital, online, accessible Bible in the translation that we'll be walking through this morning, so feel free to, to utilize that. It's a free resource. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in and get to work this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you in desperate need of a mighty work of your Holy Spirit. Would you... Would you open our eyes to see the reality of, of what's at stake in, in guarding the good deposit of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not only that we might, as Paul says, not be led astray from a, a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus, but, but that we might actively participate in, in the great work of spreading the gospel, of storming the gates of hell in, in the spread of your good news, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would attend the preaching of your word in power this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So last week we, we jumped into the, the final section of this three-part letter. Season three, you might say, of this canonized, supremely authoritative Netflix series. With season one focusing on uh, Paul's defense of his apostolic authority, we spent the better part of the first seven chapters of this book of the Bible looking at, at that argument. Season two focusing on gospel-formed, gospel-motivated, sacrificial generosity, chapters 8 and 9. This final, quote-unquote, season, so to speak, focusing on Paul's attention uh, on the rebellious minority in Corinth, calling them to repent while they still have time. That's chapters 10 through 13. Going back to last week, some view these, these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians as an unnecessary addition to an already really well-written letter, kind of like Back to the Future Part 3, as I mentioned last week. Some of us would argue we could have done without that third one. Paul, Paul ends chapter 9 with these incredible words where he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, and he punctuates it with an exclamation point, which would be a really great way to end a letter, right? With this animated expression of gratitude for God's incredibly glorious grace, and yet Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't end things there, but rather he takes the better part of these last four chapters to address those who remain in opposition to his gospel and his apostolic authority. Those having resisted his authority over the church and having asserted themselves as apostles. Paul was being scrutinized. If you've been around for this series, you've seen this over and over again. He was being scrutinized on the basis of his human frailty and his less than impressive rhetorical skills. Things seen by his opponents as disqualifying. They, they couldn't get their minds around this idea of God's strength made perfect in human weakness, showing that the power at work in our lives, the power at work in our ministries is not owing to us, but to God himself. 
And so Paul takes the time to address his opponents here, feeling no sort of pressure to give himself over to, to posturing, not, not reacting out of insecurity. As we saw last week, he's perfectly secure in the identity that he has in Jesus, having been set free from bondage to the fragile human ego so that he begins chapter 11 with these words. Verse one, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Paul's opponents have sought to to undermine his authority, not only by pointing out his lack of rhetorical skills and leadership charisma, but also by boasting of their own greatness. And so Paul says, okay, you you wanna play that game? Let's have a go at it. Let me show you what boasting actually looks like. Not because I believe that any of us should be boasting in and of ourselves, but because you need to be put in your place. If you're gonna consider me a fool, Paul says, indulge me in that for just a second. Let me expose what true foolishness actually is. That's where Paul's going in these coming chapters. He's going to seem to be a little bit inconsistent or contradictory to things that he says elsewhere in scripture, but that's not what he's doing. He's stepping onto their turf in some sense to to argue them right out of the discussion. He, he, He says in verse two, here we get the reasoning for why he's gonna go where he's gonna go in these last few chapters of 2 Corinthians. He says, Verse two, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul was, as we see in the book of Acts, he was the first to plant the gospel in the city of Corinth out of the soil of which a church was was birthed, the very church that he's writing to here. So that Paul cares deeply about this group of people, this this crowd of God's redeemed, his beloved, like a father giving away his daughter on her wedding day. He's, He's jealous for them, having betrothed them to Jesus, which is conversion language. That's becoming a Christian language. Longing to present them to Jesus in purity, which is second coming of Christ language return of Jesus language. We, we see this kind of marriage language other places in scripture, right? As a way of helping to make sense of the covenant between Christ and the church. Perhaps one of the most famous passages would be Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 27, which says, and this is also Paul writing, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul understands that the Christian is being prepared for this great marriage supper of the lamb, the marriage supper of Christ as his bride. Revelation chapter 19, the apostle John says it this way, verses seven through nine, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen, John says, is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Paul Paul has this picture in mind of that great day to come and it drives him to jealousy for the church in Corinth as he considers the possibility of their being led astray. His jealousy, a representation of God's divine 
jealousy, which we see throughout the scriptures. I'll give you just a few examples. Exodus chapter 20, verses four and five. God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Or Exodus 34, 14, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Or how about Deuteronomy 6, verses 14 and 15? You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. To, to say that God is jealous, it's not to attribute sin to God as though the way we use the term is, is the same way that the Bible uses it in reference to God himself. With, with God, you could say it this way, idolatry, is adultery. Very few people would, would define a healthy marriage as one in which the, the wife gives her undivided heart to her husband while her husband gives his heart to multiple women. And the same is true of, of God. He, he graciously and wondrously and beautifully gives his heart to his people and his desire, his expectation is that we would, as his bride, give our hearts to him in return. That's what Paul longs for as he thinks about the church in Corinth, a church being tempted to veer away from a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. He sees a threat to the marriage relationship, you might say, between Jesus and his people. The, the same threat since the very dawn of creation, going back to Genesis chapter three, the craftiness of Satan who leads people astray, in this case, through false apostles and their teaching. This is, uh, if you've been around for this series from the beginning, you know, this, this is not the first time that Paul mentions Satan in this letter. Going back to chapter two, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. But Satan has his designs, his schemes, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, just as we have our, our section of our partnership booklet entitled Practice and Method, so Satan has a section of his playbook entitled Practice and Method. C.S. Lewis does an incredible job of exposing some of that in his famous screw tape letters, showing the, the variety of ways that Satan seeks to outwit the church in his effort to destroy the church. Going back to chapter two, there Paul talked about how Satan loves unrepentant sin and will do everything in his power to keep Jesus's church from exercising church discipline. And, and Satan also hates forgiveness and Christian love so that he'll do everything in his power to keep the church from wrapping her arms around repentant sinners so that we've been outwitted by Satan, Paul says, if we choose to ignore unrepentant sin on the one hand, compromising the corporate witness of the church and the integrity of the gospel, and we've been outwitted by Satan if we choose not to forgive, comfort, and love repentant sinners, thus sowing division in the church, discord in the church. Those are just a couple of the ways that Paul's already expressed the schemes of the devil in his attempt to destroy this very church in the city of Corinth. Here in chapter 11, his focus is on the, those false apostles who Satan is using to lead the, the thoughts of those in the church astray, something to, to which Satan to this very day is still committed. That's not a first century Christianity problem solely. 
D.A. Carson, in his commentary, he says this. He says, from the time of the fall, Genesis 3, to the present day, men and women have frequently succumbed to the deceptive devices of the devil. Christians are especially open to the kind of cunning deceit that combines the language of faith and religion with the content of self-interest and flattery. We like to be told how special we are, how wise, how blessed. We like to have our Christianity shaped less by the cross, he says, than by triumphalism or rules or charismatic leaders or subjective experience. And if this shaping can be coded, he says, with assurances of orthodoxy, complete with cliche, we may not detect the presence of the arch deceiver nor see that we're being weaned away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ to a different gospel. What, what Paul's saying here, he's saying that, that sincerity and pure devotion in and of itself, it doesn't go far enough, right? It's possible to be sincerely and purely devoted to religiosity. It's possible to be sincerely and purely devoted to, to various causes of different sorts. Paul's zealous ambition is that the church would be sincerely and purely devoted to Jesus. Verse three, Sam Storms in, in his commentary, he says this, he says, Zeal is a colossal waste of energy if its aim is anything other than Christ. Spirituality is a sham if Christ is not its substance. Passion, no matter how intense or well-intended, is a meaningless vapor in the human soul if it is not awakened by the beauty and splendor of Christ and has for its goal the glory and praise of Christ. There simply, he says, is no value in religious activity that is not Christological at its core, meaning Jesus at the center. Like Paul's not, he's not advocating for nominal Christianity. He's not advocating for Bible beltism. He's not advocating for hollow, empty ritual. He's, he's advocating for Christ, the source of our joy, Christ, the object of our faith, Christ, the aim of our affection. He, he goes on and says, some of the most sobering words in all of scripture, verse four. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Here, here Paul gives us a little, a little more clarity regarding the substance of this false teaching that threatens to undo the church in, in Corinth. And it's, it's incredibly sobering. Because it doesn't seek to do away with the name of Jesus or words like gospel and spirit, but rather seeks to distort those very terms in the very name of Jesus Christ himself. A different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. That's terrifying. And it's a pervasive enough problem and danger to the church that this is not the only place that Paul addresses it in scripture. You see the very same thing with the churches of Galatia as Paul writes in Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9. He says to, to the churches there, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There's that language. Not that there is another one, Paul says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, Paul says, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, he says it twice. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
What, what you have in, in Galatia and Corinth are, are false teachers who are leading people astray through the co-opting of Christian terms and ideas, seeking to destroy the work of the gospel in the name of the gospel, seeking to lure people to another Jesus in the name of Jesus. Right, we, we talked about this back in chapter four where Paul uh, declared his refusal to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, chapter four, verse two. I mean, think present day uh, of the many professing Christians and pastors, our day and age who have abandoned significant elements of Christian doctrine, just ripped them out of the systematic theology book altogether. Think of the many who have distanced themselves from the message of salvation in Christ alone for fear of being perceived as narrow-minded. Think of the many who have promised health and prosperity to all whose faith is big enough, leaving those in the furnace of affliction embarrassed and ashamed. Think of the many even within the tribes of Christian orthodoxy, biblical orthodoxy, who have taken the Bible out of, out of context in order to fit their agenda somehow. To, to again quote Sam Storms, he says, one frightening feature of contemporary Christianity is the ease with which professing believers embrace or at least endorse so-called gospels that are anything but good news, though they make it sound as such. Whether it be, he says, the gospel of self-esteem or the gospel of personal peace or the gospel of perpetual health or the gospel of financial prosperity or the gospel of the power of positive thinking, Otherwise, well-meaning Christians, he says, abandon spiritual discernment, ignore the biblical text, and fall prey to religious hucksters and purveyors of false hope. A different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. The author of Ecclesiastes knew it well. There is nothing new under the sun. So we have to ask this morning as a church, what do we mean when we talk about Jesus? Is it the Jesus that Paul proclaimed? What do we mean when we, when we throw around the term spirit or gospel? And so I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't do this, if I didn't take us through this exercise this morning. I wanna, I wanna walk us briefly through three of our many core beliefs as a church, particularly those having to do with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and, and the gospel, so that there's no confusion about what we mean when we use those words and speak of the persons behind those words. So here we go, here, here's what we believe about Jesus Christ affirmed by any and all partners of our church. And I quote, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is eternal God. All things were and are created by him, through him and for him. Not only are all things created by him, all things are sustained by him. He is the incarnate word of God who without ceasing to be God became flesh and dwelt among man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He is both fully God and fully man, the God-man. He came on a mission to save sinners. He lived a sinless life, the life we couldn't live. He died in accordance with the scriptures as our substitute sin bearer. In this, he revealed God's love and preserved God's justice. He was buried, rose bodily on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning as our triumphant, exalted king and interceding to God the Father on our behalf as our perfect high priest and advocate until... Here's what we believe about the Holy Spirit affirmed by any and all partners of our church. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is indeed a person, not merely a power. Ascribed to him are intelligence, a will and affections. The Holy Spirit is eternal God, just like Jesus. 
He was actively involved in the creation of the world. He qualifies men and women for various tasks, giving them knowledge and ability. Of greater importance is his work in redemption. He prepared a body for Jesus, enabling Jesus to become a sacrifice for sin. He anointed Jesus at his baptism, preparing Jesus for the work of ministry. He inspired the scriptures without which we would have no special revelation of God. He began building and continues to build the church. He convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. By him, men are justified, sanctified, and made clean. He baptizes all believers into the body of Christ, indwelling them, sealing them for the day of redemption, and guiding them into all truth as he points them to the glory of Christ. Here's what we believe about the gospel, affirmed by any and all partners of our church. The gospel is the good news that while we were dead in our sin and unable to save ourselves, Jesus Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, enabling us to enjoy making much of him forever. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. To be justified by grace alone means that we do absolutely nothing to merit our own acquittal. To be justified by faith alone means that we believe and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone as our means of justification. Jesus took our sin upon himself and in return gifts us his perfect, obedient righteousness. With the heart, one believes and is justified. To the one who trusts in Jesus Christ alone, his faith is counted as righteousness. This gospel, it's also the foundation for our confidence in the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom and the consummation of his purpose for all creation in the new heaven and new earth. This gospel is centered in Christ, is the foundation for the life of the church, and is our only hope for eternal life. This gospel is not proclaimed if Christ's penal substitutionary death and bodily resurrection are not central to our message. I can't get any clearer than that. If you're, if you're not a Christian, that's the Jesus I pray you fall in love with. That's the spirit I pray God puts in your heart as a guarantee, as Paul says in this very letter. That's the gospel I pray informs and transforms your life for the glory of God. There is no other gospel, as Paul says, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our message. That's our good news. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no need to distort it. There's no need to dilute it. There's no need to take it apart and disassemble it. If you're, if you're a Christian, man, I pray that your heart is encouraged in walking through those beautiful truths together, in knowing that our Jesus is not another Jesus, in knowing that our spirit is not another spirit, in knowing that our gospel is not a different gospel. Paul says in verse 5, he says, Indeed, I consider I, I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. We were talking about this before the service. If you don't believe that there's satire in the Bible, you're about to get some of it. Paul gets a little sassy here in the last few chapters of, of the book of 2 Corinthians. His opponents, they were fixated on style over substance. Does that sound familiar? I mean, again, nothing new under the sun. Going back to last week, his opponents were saying chapter 10, verse 10, his letters, oh, they're so weighty, they're so strong. But his bodily presence is incredibly weak. His speech is of no account. Paul, Paul knows he's not the most eloquent communicator, according to the teachings and practice of, of Greco-Roman rhetoric. However, 
he also understands that he's inferior to absolutely no one when it comes to knowledge of the scriptures and the truth of the gospel. That his teaching is, is clear and undeniably orthodox. And it's something he, that he's willing to go to the mat for. Look at verse 7. He asks, or, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, Paul says, by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, remember those impoverished Macedonians from chapter 8? They supplied my need, Paul says. So I refrained, and I will refrain from burdening, burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Corinth was the capital of Achaia. Verse 11, he says, and why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, if you go back to the prequel, Paul makes this argument that he has every right to make his living as a laborer in the gospel, to receive financial support from those to whom he administered. Yet, he, he also saw an obstacle in the way of the gospel, particularly in the city of Corinth. Corinth was the land of oratory, the land of rhetoric. It was an urban city center where people leveraged their public speaking skills in an effort to make a lot of money. So that Paul saw need to distinguish himself from the profiteers that, that surrounded him, including the false apostles seeking to lead the saints in Corinth astray. And so Paul laid down his rights, refusing to accept financial support from the church in Corinth, removing perhaps one of the greatest obstacles to the gospel in that very city. That in a world in which lofty speech could be bought, Paul declared, the gospel is not for sale. If it sets me apart, he says, from the, from the money-hungry, profiteering public speakers, I'll make tents for a living. If that's what it takes to make crystal clear that salvation cannot be bought, so be it. And that's exactly what Paul did. Right? Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul supported himself by tent making when he first came to the city of Corinth, in addition to raising support from other places to subsidize his cost of living. He goes on in verses 12 through 15 to say, and what am I doing, uh, excuse me, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do, me and my friends. For such men, he says, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end, Paul says, will correspond to their deeds. Paul calls these men, these opponents, false apostles and deceitful workmen, masquerading as angels of light, all the while servants of the devil, who too masquerades as an angel of light. The Apostle Paul if you were around for our series through the book of Acts, he warned the church in Ephesus on his way back from his third missionary journey, Acts chapter 20, saying, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Do you see what the church is up against? Not only is it that False teaching doesn't always seek to do away with Christian terminology, 
but rather seeks to distort those very terms in the very name of Jesus Christ himself, a different Jesus, a, a different spirit, a different gospel. But it's also that those doing the false teaching oftentimes masquerade in fleece. As Kent Hughes says in his commentary, the wolves in the church that devour sheep do not howl or bare their teeth. They come in sheep's clothing, smiling, reciting scripture, full of understanding, promising something more than Christ. Or as Hughes says elsewhere, when Satan is at work, we never smell sulfur or glance down at a cloven hoof. Rather, he is sweetness and a congenial smiling light until he has control. What Paul's saying to the church, and this includes us, we have a great responsibility to exercise discernment as followers of Jesus Christ, that our thoughts might not be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to him. Coming back to verse three, where does the, where does the motivation for, for that kind of discernment and fidelity lie? Ironically, in the very gospel that we seek to guard. I love the way that the Gospel Transformation Bible puts it. It says, the key to gospel fidelity is to know that Christ's sincere and pure devotion to you is far stronger than yours to him. When we were unacceptable and at our worst, he bound himself to us with his covenantal love. Christ's marital fidelity to his bride is on full display at the cross, and it moves his bride to an increasingly sincere and pure devotion. Jesus will hold fast the true church by his grace. Jesus will empower the true church to storm the gates of hell. And in the end, the true Jesus and true spirit and true gospel will declare consummate victory and forever triumph over Satan and his masquerading army of darkness. Amen? Like, if, if we're not ready to sing now, I don't know what will make us ready to sing. But that's what we're about to do. Um, we're going to worship in a couple of different ways now as we move this ser service forward. Uh, we're going to sing together. And as I said, I think a couple of weeks ago when we were out here on this lawn, if I know that's weird because you're not close enough to other people that you can't hear your own terrible voice. And it makes it, you know, for a bad opportunity for us to engage in song. But I just invite you to do that, to lean in and to sing to actively participate in that way in worship of this glorious Jesus who has filled us with his Holy Spirit and, and empowered us to fight for and proclaim this beautiful gospel. We're also going to receive communion. Uh, there are communion cups on either table on either side of the lawn. If you haven't picked up one of those, uh, I encourage you to do that sometime between now and the end of the service. We've got two more songs. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Um, I just invite you to pause before you receive of the, the bread and the cup and, and just to, to remember the, the beautiful work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood, that, that we might be brought into this fold as the bride of Christ in preparation for this beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb to come.